internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god who can reach the side of the ocean floor. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined by two very special guests. Two of the founders and the editor of Arctos Media, Daniel Freeberg and Konstantin von Hofmeister. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Uh, I look forward to hearing the story of Arctos Media and um, some recent troubles you've been having and the way you're overcoming that. I'd also like to mention Konstantin is a translator who actually translated the Spengler book that was the subject of one of my most recent episodes, which I'm very excited to maybe uh, at the end we can talk a little bit about Spengler. But gentlemen, if you don't mind introducing yourselves, I'd like to, um, you know, I, I was trying to promote you guys when you were having some trouble recently. You 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 came you came on the wrong side of uh, what we'll call some blue haired Twitter users who were um, trying to deplatform you. And I'm not sure you've had the chance to tell the story yet. So I'm looking forward to being uh, the platform for you guys to to tell everybody what's been going on and and help promote your book, your books and your work and where we can find it now. Uh, so, Daniel, why don't you get us started? Daniel is the CEO and the founder of Arctos Media. Why don't you get us started? Um, catch us up to the most recent going-ons, and then I'd like to hear a little bit of the the founding history of Arctos. Sure, sure. Thank, thanks for having us on, by the way. Um, yeah, my name is Daniel. I'm uh, 45 years old, married with three kids, uh, Swedish and uh, currently living in Poland. And I've been active on the dissident right for about 30 years, so quite a long time. Started quite young. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I was uh, one of the founders of Arctos uh, almost 14 years ago, uh, back in November 2009. And uh, the, re the reason we founded Arctos was basically because we, we saw this a huge void on, on the English language market when it came to European thinkers, especially the ones from from the French New Right, and uh, and um, also when it came to to a lot of the more interesting Evola titles, which were completely unavailable in English. So um, yeah, so so we kind of set out to to make sure make these important voices available in English and we bought the, the rights to pretty much everything written by uh, people like Guillaume Fai uh, and Alain de Benoit and uh, yeah some some other noteworthy uh, thinkers of the of the European New Right as well as Evola and um, it's it's a uh, it's a pretty fun story um, because we uh, we bought this other company, smaller company, uh, which uh, had an office in India, and and we took over one of their employees, two of their employees actually, and this office was hugely dysfunctional. And since I was uh, CEO and responsible for the operations, and I was trying to do this kind of uh, in my free time, uh, aside from my normal my normie job in, in Sweden, and it didn't really work out. So uh, I ended up uh, basically with a, 
having to make the decision to either shut down the Indian office or or to move there and and uh, take a more hands-on approach. So uh, I moved to India in in January uh, 2011. I, I we hired another Swede who, who also moved there, and uh, we pretty much uh, <clears throat> made operation work, and we started publishing around. 15 to 20 books per year from that year and onwards and uh it it from an, from a small apartment in in uh, a suburb uh, to bombay for the first year which was pretty interesting it was you know uh, nothing really worked internet was uh, uh, like down 50% of the time and uh, and we had you know rats huge rats outside and uh, Everything was dirty and disgusting, and uh, yeah, anyone who's been to India pretty much knows what it looks like. And uh, and everything was extremely hot. It was extremely hot. We didn't even have AC in the beginning. I I finally bought an AC after after like two three months of suffering in forty degrees heat while we were working. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's um, how we started. And and for the first three years, we were based in India, and we. Um, we did a lot of good work there, and and for at very low cost because we could keep our own salaries down, in order to reinvest pretty much all our profits into expanding the company so we could grow fast. And uh, yeah, thanks to that, we we uh, pretty much outgrew all the all the competition because there were a, a few other uh, similar companies at the time. Not many of them are still around, uh, but. Uh, yeah, we, we we left them in the backwater pretty quickly because we were mu- much more cost efficient. We were running our operation more professionally. I mean, I, I have a I have a background in in uh, in, um, in 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 the private sector in in uh, several management positions and and so on. So so I yeah I I know how how companies should be run and. Um, yeah, and, and then we moved to Budapest after the first uh, these uh, three years, um, and uh, since then we've been based in Europe, which which was a huge relief then to, to finally get back to Europe again. Um, what what else? Yeah, well, well, perhaps we... Constantin can give a little story about how he became involved with the company before we get to the uh, the the recent uh, communist attacks on you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I started working for Arctos about three years ago, actually. Like, uh, I think, I think in June, it will be about three years. Um, so, yeah, I started with just editing books. Um, I think the first one I edited was Askar Svarte, uh, a book about Heidegger. Um, then later on, I also translated several books uh, for Arctos. And uh, basically proofreading as well. Uh, not, n- now uh, I still edit books, and uh, also because I'm the managing editor of the of the new Arctos website, I choose all the articles uh, that actually go on the site every day. Uh, so I'm actually very busy, or actually I've always been very busy um, being in touch or staying in touch with the authors. I'm asking them questions, uh, and maybe requesting changes, or even just 
requesting articles or new material. Uh, yeah, I guess it's very time consuming. Uh, it can be time consuming being an editor because it's not just like correcting text, but a lot of times, like if things aren't clear in the text uh, and you can't figure it out, then you have to send an email to the author to clarify or maybe even discuss certain points that you might disagree with as an editor, maybe because I don't know, they, they don't sound right or they don't sound good. Yes. So, but so far, like the experience of being an editor and, and, and being in touch with, with the authors uh, has been positive and rewarding. Like most of them are very forthcoming with any kind of help that I request, which kind of surprised me, right? Because uh, in the beginning, I thought, you know, like authors, a lot of them could be like these eccentric types, maybe even egotistical and uh, self-centered. Yes, I'm I'm always right and people shouldn't touch my writings. But now after having done this work for several years, I found that actually most of them are rather flexible yes and actually listen to advice i mean if you if if you explain it well and most of the time they they see my point and and sort of agree and even if they disagree we usually find some kind of compromise to, to improve the quality of the writing so i must say that that i really love my job i i really enjoy it yes because uh i myself I'm a writer, or I, I, I would consider myself one, and have always been connected to literature and books. So from an early age, I've I've written short stories, novels, poems, essays, and so on. Um, I went to the University of New Orleans uh, to study literature and political science. So I got my my. Uh, bachelor's in English literature and my master's in political science. Uh, yeah, I pretty much lived all over the world. Like I was born in Germany, lived in Germany until I was 15. Uh, then I moved to Arizona in Flagstaff, uh, went to high school there, graduated from high school, lived in New Hampshire for a couple of years. And then also I lived in India. It's funny that Daniel mentioned India earlier. So because I, I know India quite well, I lived in India for three years, uh, writing English language articles for Indian newspapers. Well, because in India, because I, I suppose English is, a, is an official language in India. So they have a lot of English language newspapers. And I wrote a lot of travel reports and uh, I don't know, film reviews and also interviews with various people that I encounter in India, including the Dalai Lama, uh, who I interviewed when he was in New Delhi, giving a speech about the spiritual relationship between India and Tibet. So so I agree with what Daniel said earlier, that, um, well, India is rather dirty. Uh, it's impossible to deny. Uh, there are big rats. Yes, uh, it's also true, like walking around. I mean, I read that in, in, in Bombay, or Mumbai, as it's now called, uh, there are actually more rats than people. Uh, and I think the population of, of, of Mumbai is like 
30 million probably so a lot of rats and you you can see them walking around at night the rats i mean moving all over the place because during the day i suppose they hide you don't you don't see that many uh yeah but i mean the, the dirt and the smell never really bothered me that much because i suppose i got used to it and and the heat i kind of even enjoyed the heat and i'm not a fan of, of air conditioning so i voluntarily worked in a room without ac and where i lived and including new orleans where it's also very hot and humid i never had an ac uh yeah so in new orleans i studied in india i worked for newspapers and also lived in uzbekistan for a year in Tashkent, working as an elementary school teacher for a private school, a British private school, with uh, students that were sons and daughters of various Uzbek ministers from the government or uh, sons and daughters of various foreign diplomats, uh, which which was an interesting experience because uh, one of my students was the granddaughter of Islam Karimov, the president of Uzbekistan at the time. Um, So I was always invited to the presidential palace to various diplomatic functions. And the mother of my student, uh, she also had the, she also uh, owned the most prestigious nightclub in Tashkent. So every weekend uh, I used to go there to lounge around and had of course VIP status since, since I was the, her daughter's teacher, so it had its it had its perks uh, teaching in Tashkent. But after a year, I got a bit bored and uh, moved to Moscow. And then I also lived in in Moscow for many years. Uh, yeah, met my wife in Moscow. Um, I'm two years older than Daniel. I'm forty seven. Uh, also have two children, two daughters. Uh, who speak fluent Russian. My my Russian is okay, but a bit rusty. Uh, not as great as it could be. Uh, maybe I should put more effort in, into it. Yeah, so traveled extensively in Russia, all over the place. Really liked it there, enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so I work from home because I do the editing, so I don't need to go to an office. Uh, work by myself with times I'm flexible so usually I have sometimes I have deadlines when it's books or even articles because working for the website like now at the moment we're publishing two articles per day sometimes three and usually one in the morning one in the afternoon and maybe one in the evening yes but it I, I think in the future we want to expand and maybe publish more articles so and all of these articles have to be have to be proofread and sometimes translated uh edited well can i ask how you uh how did you get connected to arctos uh uh well i knew arctos of course i've 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 read uh, arctos books for a very long time uh before i even considered you know working for them so so when i was a student uh i did various other jobs and most of the time I was just writing in Moscow. I was teaching and, and business English and giving seminars uh, rather successfully. Uh, but then I was just basically 
reading about Arctos, some articles online that just came across by coincidence. And I think that was in yeah 2016 when Trump became president. Um, I was sort of really into the alt-right and sort of wrote articles that were also published on various alt-right websites back then. And then there was a conference, I think it was in 2017. Uh, Daniel, the, the conference in, in uh, Stockholm was 2017, right? Yeah, the big one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, because, right. Yeah, I don't tell any ideas. Uh, yeah, February 2017. Yeah, so Daniel, Daniel, Daniel organized the conference. I think it was the, the, officially like back then it was an alt right conference, right? Um, not ex yeah, maybe. I mean, we we it was the ninth identitarian ideas conference. Uh, ah, right. So we 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 actually been doing these for long before the alt right even existed as a as a as a phenomenon but uh, so it, it was more of an identitarian conference i guess but uh, yeah you know it, it everything was pretty much alt right well, every, every, well i well the the, the, uh, the alt right was still popular at the time i mean uh, it, the the brand alt right like hadn't been burned like w when the conference took place um so people so people I think some people still called themselves alt-right voluntarily, right? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so you invited me to the conference as a speaker. So, so, so I came from Moscow to Stockholm to give a speech. Actually, my speech was about America, called Secret America. The America that we don't see on the surface, yes, like H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, the the, the 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 settlers and the early colonizers, the true American heroes, so to speak. Uh, anyway, so th that's how we first met in person was in Stockholm, and Arctos, of course, had already existed for several years when the conference took place, and uh, after the conference, I was thinking about you know. It, might be a good idea, you know, to work for Arctos. I would really like it because I would like to contribute to this great movement, you know, this, this great right-wing movement to, 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 to disseminate ideas, to maybe to even influence people. Yeah, but I, I, I didn't I didn't ask you right away to work for Arctos because I was busy with other things and family and so on. So I think after a couple of years, finally, like, I sort of convinced myself to, to ask you, uh, if I could work for Arctos, and well, you you agreed. Uh, yeah, I already. Uh, um, th there was already some kind of lobbying going on from <laughs> from a, a couple of mutual friends, I think, who who uh, told me, oh, "Wow, you 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 really need to hire Constantine. He's an excellent editor, and uh, yeah, I think he could could do some great work for you guys." And uh, yeah, so so I was pretty much. Uh, already on board with with the idea when 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 you approached us so that's interesting yeah, uh, yeah. so so well yeah so that's pretty much the story and that was like i said about yeah three years ago and we, we did uh, we did however meet one once uh, uh <laughs> earlier true. it's back true. in 2000, 2004 i think in, in wow. germany at yeah, the yeah, yeah, Fest, yeah. uh at the launch of uh the German edition of uh, Germ Fi's uh, Why We Fight. 
Ah, that's true. That's right. Almost 20 years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. But did did we have like a long conversation back then? Because I don't know. To be honest, I think we just said hello, and, and that's pretty yeah. much it, right. So because yeah. I don't remember like really talking to you back then. I don't think we did. Right. No, we didn't. Uh, I I was talking with Pierre Krabs on on fire, and I yeah, we we just said hello, and that that's it. I right, didn't really right. know too much about you back then. Yeah, I didn't know too much about you either. So, I mean, that that was really a long time ago. That was, yeah, like I said, 19, 20 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Good old. Yeah, time flies. Well, this right. is great. This is great history. I'm glad to. I'm glad to go over all that. Now, let's skip. Uh, there, there's actually a lot to talk about in that intervening time. Um, that I, maybe we'll have time to get to later. But uh, we were talking before the show about several several instances of you guys being deplatformed. I mentioned earlier Twitter, but that's really the tip of the iceberg. It went from PayPal to your book distributor to Twitter. So there's been. Um, well, I don't know. I'll let you guys characterize it. I don't. I don't know if it's a coordinated attack on you specifically, although I think it probably was, and we can talk about why. Um, but also, you guys were also just sort of swept up in a huge wave of of banning and deplatforming that started around 2018. Uh, yeah, fa famously affecting Alex Jones is probably the biggest, the biggest effect. Uh, the 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 most well known sort of conspicuous person who was deplatformed from everything online but it happened to to dozens if not hundreds of smaller time sort of uh, alternative media sources uh you guys being the ones that affect us the most content creators sort of on the right i guess um to just to put it broadly uh it was kind of you know it was a big deal Every, everyone everyone took note so i'm i'm really honored to have you guys here to tell the story so do you want to start with the paypal deplatforming if you don't mind and just take us all the way up to now 2023 sure sure um the the paypal deplatforming was uh, as you said um part of a kind of greater purge post uh, charlottesville there was you know this uh, huge censorship push affecting everyone from from the alt light to the proper alt right, um, even people like Lauren Southern and, and uh, Laura Loomer, people like this got got banned from like everything, every online platform. We actually managed to navigate uh, these turbulent times quite well, and we only got the platform from PayPal. But uh, they they didn't just the platform Arctos; they the platform my personal account. They shut down several um, PayPal accounts connected to businesses which had nothing to do with politics just because I was involved in, in, in said businesses. So it was like, uh, yeah, I was put on, on some some list at that time, I guess. Um, but apart from PayPal, nothing much happened back then. Um, and right now, but... but um, and. and for a while, we were kind of out of the woods. We we didn't really get affected much by by these uh, the platformings that uh, got other publishers completely shut down back then. And um, but then I noticed um, gradually that there is this uh, website platform for uh, for uh, you know dissertations, academic papers, and so on. And um, yeah, I, I'm registered on this website and I get notifications whenever Arctos or 
or or myself uh, is is mentioned in any any research paper or report or whatever. And uh, even though nothing special happened from our side, we we were doing whatever we we were doing for for the past uh, twelve years, and uh, and we we tried to kind of keep our heads down and focus on book publishing and uh, yeah, uh, but but uh, these papers were being churned out, and they were these were like proper hit jobs. They were pretty much identical from various radical leftist uh, activist researchers from different universities. And um, they were dealing with, you know, various time, types of, of uh, what they call white supremacist uh, violence and terrorism and stuff like this. And they would start out with, you know, dealing with some of these incidents in, in, uh, in the U.S., uh, in particular, and then they would pretty much end up with the conclusion that, uh, uh, well, this uh, uh, biggest far-right book publishing company, Arctos, uh, are kind of the, the main producer of these ideas which lead to violence and terror. And, yeah. Yeah, and, early, and... earlier I used the term communists, and I did so half tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think I was too far off. Given, given the academic source of some of this. Yeah, they were totally unprofessional. The, these, these were pure, pure and simple political activists uh, creating like a pseudo-academic foundation for, for future deplatforming. So, so I kind of had the feeling that something would happen. It was building up to, to, to some, some uh, greater action against us. Since, uh, yeah... So so um, and finally it happened. Finally, back in November 2021, we received a, a very brief email from Ingram, which is the world's biggest uh, book distributor. They pretty much have a monopoly on book distribution worldwide. That uh, that they they had made a business decision to terminate our contract effective imme- immediately, which they have the right to do because pretty much all major companies nowadays they have a an uh, opt-out clause in their contract giving them the right to terminate the contract at any time for any reason without giving any explanation and they just use this clause to to terminate our account but luckily for us they they forgot to actually do it and and it took another one and a half year uh, before uh, someone reminded them probably I should also mention that in this initial email, two senior managers in, at Ingram were copied, which uh, which leads me to believe that this was a top level decision. Probably, probably they were pressured by by the ADL or some similar group, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much um, what happened. And and in in February they they simply switched off our our distribution completely yes february 2023 so just a few months ago yeah now yeah. how uh, how how has this affected your business and and your trade you both are uh full-time now living off of arctos you're both full-time working correct you mentioned being professional in other fields but it sounds like this is what you're doing full-time now yeah pretty much yes so how has that affected uh your business 
Um, obviously, very negatively in terms of income. Of course, there are other distributors, and and we since we could see this coming, we 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 had time to make some preparations. We had time to diversify, uh, create some some sort of redundancy. Um, so so uh, not all titles were effectively removed from the internet, uh, but but a significant portion. So financially, it hit us pretty badly, and. Um, which was but the we, plan? Which was the plan? Obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I I think most companies in a similar situation would probably not survive such an event. But uh, we decided we had been doing pretty well for a while, so we we had built up some 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 uh, reserve capital, and we decided to turn this into an opportunity to kind of evolve. And, and take take uh, Arctus to the next level, uh, to and transform the, the operation into being something more than just a book publisher. So, which we had been, you know, we we've been toying with the idea for a couple of years, but we, you know, it's easy to to get comfortable and and uh, and then you don't want to to risk losing losing this kind of comfort by by uh, making changes which will. Kind of expose you to a greater risk, but now we we already pretty much lost what we could lose. So so uh, we thought we might as well as well you know take it to the next level, uh, create a professional online uh, journal, which which uh, Constantine mentioned previously, which he's doing an excellent job being the managing editor of, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe you can. Uh, talk some more about that, Constantine. Well, the idea the idea is to basically turn Arctos into a think tank. Uh, so well, basically a platform that provides uh, different voices with the opportunity to be heard, uh, alternative voices, dissident voices, voices that are basically killed in the mainstream by being deplatformed or voices that are quite brilliant even, but can never be heard like on say, quote unquote, normal or mainstream websites. Uh, so the idea is basically to, to engender dialogue um, and not become an echo chamber. So, so basically, we want to we want to 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 offer different viewpoints, sometimes even controversial viewpoints, to make people think, and maybe even uh, synthesize uh, new philosophies or maybe even new ideas um, that might help us to overcome somehow the, the the current crisis that Western civilization finds itself in. Yes, because I, I guess that the, the, the common theme of Arctos is that it is, it is uh, pro-European. It is, it, it is a pro-European project uh, designed to basically do its part in saving 
the West protecting Europe from its enemies, uh, therefore propagating certain truths that are not heard uh, in the mainstream. In order to do this effectively, of course, we must grow. Yes, like we must expand our reach and gain uh, more followers, more readers. Uh, it's not. It's not cheap. I would say. Also, it's very time intensive. Uh, it involves a, a lot of work to maintain this website because of its professional uh nature so the i mean i suppose the 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 time it takes to to make it look presentable to make it look professional uh is, is quite a lot to say same goes for editing i mean editing and articles why don't you tell the uh sorry to interrupt tell yes. the listener what the website is and i'll also link it in the notes well, the website is arctos.com, of course, and the, the website is a journal, basically, that offers articles every day on a variety of topics from culture, history, politics, and news articles, but with a, I would say, a right-wing a right -wing spin. So we report on certain news items that we consider are important to Europeans and and people living in the West, news articles that might affect them. But uh, in contrast to mainstream news, we basically report about these events uh, from a right-wing perspective. So people can see uh, if this event is somehow beneficial uh, to the West or detrimental. And at the same time, we also uh, offer a lot of what, what we call insights, yes, that, that, like uh, theoretical articles about culture, philosophy, literature, history, background information that we consider uh, important because people need to understand, like, why are we at this particular point in history? How, how did we get here? And so we're basically trying to educate people as well. Um, well, I think in, in today's media environment and where I'm seeing everything going broadly, either in the political sphere or or not, just in the in the world of letters and ideas and books, uh, having a website like this is really the way to go. So I think it sounds like Daniel characterized it properly, that this this kind of pushed you guys to do the thing you wanted to do anyway, and you should have done anyway. So uh it is a new opportunity i'm looking at the website now it's fantastic there's nothing like this anywhere today i think it's the day after the anniversary of dominic venner's uh suicide and you have three articles it looks like there are these new translations i believe you put up at least one new translation if, if i'm remembering correctly uh, of, of dominic venner's writing um i'm scrolling through i'm seeing things by dugan things on evola so this is fantastic. Um, would you mind? I hope I'm not derailing where you were going. Would you mind talking a little bit about Dominic Venner and you? Because because Daniel mentioned the French New Right being part of the inspiration for this. Um, so would you mind mentioning, um, you know, why you're featuring him today? Today is the uh, 23rd of May. 
So well, we featured we 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 we, we featured uh, Venner on the twenty first of May, so that's two days ago because it was uh, the tenth anniversary uh, of his suicide. Uh, because, as is well known, he 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 killed himself. He shot himself in the middle of Notre Dame in Paris uh, on the twenty first of May, ten years ago. So twenty first of May two thousand thirteen, and to commemorate this event. We posted these articles on the website. Like I, I wrote an original piece, sort of like an introduction to Venner's life and and Venner's work, and then we posted uh, two excerpts um, from books by Venner that Arctos uh, had published previously, and that that you can still order. So, but fairly lengthy excerpts, I must say. Um, and I think yes, that the translations are new. I mean, the, the original translations. I mean, the, the, the point of the Arctos website is like we only want to publish original material, whether 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 it's translations, essays, original writings. I mean, material that hasn't been published anywhere else. Uh, going back to Venner, uh, I think Venner was an extremely uh, influential philosopher, philosopher of the of the French New Right, and the French New Right, of course, didn't only influence France but Europe and even the United States, the, the West as a whole. The, I mean, the, talking about the right wing movement, um, Pierre Krebs, uh, who's I think half French, half Austrian. I think yes, his his mother was French and um, his father Austrian. Um, he's of course also part of the New Right. It's also featured on Arctos. The reason I'm mentioning Pierre Krebs is because I visited him a couple of days ago here in Germany, and we were we were talking about about Venner, and uh, he also told me how much he was influenced by Venner. And I was talking to Robert Stoikers, uh, also a, a titan in the in the French New Right, and used to be a personal friend of, of Guillaume Feis. Uh talked to talked to Robert Stoikos on the phone a couple of days ago. And and he also said like the the, the, the I mean how how much uh Venner meant to him and and the whole movement in France. I guess Venner was a very prolific writer in terms of history and philosophy and always tried to emphasize the 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 true Western heritage of Europe. Uh, trying to fight against the foreign or alien influences that try to distort Western culture. This is why Venner, I think, one of the most important uh, points that Venner tried to make is that we as, as, as true Europeans should go back to venerating the, the Homer and, and the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and not the Bible as the true founding books of, of Western civilization. Well, I agree with that. Uh, Dan, do you have any comments before we move on? Well, only that um, I believe Arctos is uh, uniquely uh, positioned to to actually pull this off, what we are doing right now with Arctos Journal, because we have we already have a huge uh, roster of, of uh, prominent authors. I think it's uh, somewhere between 50 and 60. Which we published, and uh, we own the rights to somewhere above two hundred unique book titles, and uh, that that are yet to be published. No, that that, okay. that has been published, but uh, okay. 
where we can uh, find excerpts. It's like a literal gold mine, which uh, is never ending. It's like without bottom of, of really excellent material. So, so um, yeah, so, uh, so that, that has been very helpful. And uh, that's also one of the reasons why we can feature all of these uh, big names and great thinkers like Evola and Werner and, and uh, Alain Benoit, Guillaume Fay, and so on. on the, uh, well, on the I website think this, really. this website's going to be very successful. It looks great. Yeah, what I, what, what I would like to add real quick is like, well, Daniel already mentioned that we already have like a lot of illustrious authors uh, famous authors uh, writing writing for Arctos, like Alain de Benoit, Alexander Dugin, and Robert Stoikers, uh, just to name a few. But like my job, or what I consider my job, is also to find new new authors, like like fresh voices. And so far, uh, I've been pretty successful, I should say. Like like Chad Crowley, for example, like. I, he used to write in the past, but he hasn't written in a while, and he's back, and he's he's been writing for Arctos, and, and his stuff has been very popular. And P.R. Rattle uh, from England, who writes about Odinism, is another new voice that we now feature regularly. We have a we have a international writers. So we have we have a, a regular writer from Japan who writes about uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger. And Western culture from a Japanese perspective, also mentioning important Japanese right-wing authors and philosophers. So I think that, well, like you said, uh, and Daniel said, so so I think the potential is there for Arctos to become very big, if not the biggest player, I would say, in this in this new right scene. In, in, in terms of what it can offer to its audience, yes, I've I've always considered even before I, I I was brought into this sphere. I've said this many times, and there's many others like me. I was brought into this sphere by Bronze Age Perverts podcast, um, pretty close to the beginning when he started. So I think he might have started it in 2019, and I discovered it early 2020. But uh, Arctos, I had already heard of. It was probably the only thing I had heard of in this sphere um prior to really diving in and interestingly enough he mentions on the podcast that he was brought to twitter by the french new right to interact with them there and he talks about venner a lot that's how i know who venner is uh so i think you guys are well positioned to i consider you like a flagship resource uh and in, in like the thought and the ideas of the new right so i think you're well positioned to be uh, very successful with this website and i think it's the right move now, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this, so you can say as little or as much as you'd like, but I, when you uh, lost your distributor in February, although you said they had terminated you a year and a half earlier and just it just kept going, uh, when it happened and it was when it was public, I had figured it had something to do with uh, the war in Ukraine and the fact that you guys published Dugan. Um, do you think that had anything to do with it? And if so, would you like to make any comments about it? I I do not believe. Uh, I, I get the question a lot, actually. <laughs> that, uh, I, that's it's probably much... the yeah, it's probably the prevailing opinion on it. Yeah, but uh, I I really don't believe so. I really don't believe so because the Dugan books were already banned a long time ago, 
uh, I think it was like five years ago now or, or more, uh, from Amazon and later from Barnes & Noble. So, so the Dugin books were already unavailable on all major online platforms. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't believe so, uh, especially since uh, multiple nationalist or right-wing publishers were deplatformed before us. And they had nothing at all to do with Dugin or, or uh, and even they were even pro-Ukrainian. I mean, like like Countercurrents, for example, which were completely deplatformed, I believe, in 2018, 2019, maybe. And um, yeah, uh, so I, I don't I don't believe it has to do with Dugin. I think it's just you know they were seeing that we were getting a little bit too big uh, and. Uh, yeah, and that it was time to pretty much get rid of us. I mean, they they, they leave Makes you alone sense. as long as you're small enough to kind of fly under the radar. But once you reach a certain size, you're you're on everyone's radar all of a sudden. And, and yeah, a decision is made to take you down and then they do just that. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I know people are concerned with uh, website hosting. I've had several conversations with Anans uh, about like starting a website. And the thing that always comes up is, uh, you know, about the host doxing you. I mean, you guys aren't anonymous, but uh, even beyond the doxing, just uh, deplatforming you. Do you have any any comments on who's hosting your site or how you're how you're um overcoming or circumnavigating the potential deplatforming from the server which oh, is a, the, it's a pretty extreme thing it only happens it's only happened to a few people i can think of but uh, it's it's got to be something you have to think about I, I would say web hosting is the the least of of uh, the problems facing us when it comes to censorship because there there are such a vast number of web hosts there there are uh, plenty of you know free speech web hosts and uh, so you can pretty much always find a place for for your website the, the only the only one i know who who actually had some sort of problem with this is uh, andrew anglin and the daily stormer because pr pretty much because they took away his domain address which is a pretty extreme measure uh, but the hosting part, you, you can even host it at, at, in your own home if you want. You can just set up your own server. All you need is, an, is a fixed IP number. So the hosting part has never been something we've been concerned with. And we've also never been deplatformed from any web host. And, and we, have, we have been using the, the bigger commercial ones. So, um, yeah, that, that has never been a problem. Neither for Arctos nor any other website I've been involved with for the past 20 years or so. So good. That's good to hear. I, I consider it an extreme measure, too. I don't think it happens uh, as much as people think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of course, they can terminate your, your account. But if you, as long as you have a backup, you can just go to the next web host. And as I said, there, there are plenty of web hosts who are, you know, free speech oriented and they will who will never ever deplatform you um i yeah, i, I, I can if, if this is uh something that people ask you about i, I can even pro provide you with a couple of links 
if you want to recommend well i'm glad uh, yeah i'm glad to levels. hear this i'm glad to hear this and i want people to take note so this is this is inspiring and uh you know a reason for optimism yeah constantine it sounded like you had something to throw in no i sorry i'm apologize for interrupting <laughs> i didn't mean to interrupt no it's okay it's okay so, so no i just i just wanted to add that that well daniel's right like it the, the website itself is not a problem i think i think in, in my opinion uh the, the main problem is when you're deplatformed from monopolies like amazon right or, or youtube because i mean technically youtube and Amazon, I suppose they are not monopolies because there are a lot of other places where you can buy books, a lot of other places where you can watch videos. But in reality, there are monopolies because if, like, if you're not on Amazon, like it's almost as if you don't exist, right? I mean, a few people, unfortunately, like, uh, I mean, go out of their way to, to order books uh, somewhere else. People that have an Amazon account just because people are very very lazy right so i mean they have an amazon account they order everything on amazon and if they find out like a book is not available on amazon uh and they have to order it somewhere else they have to have to have to register somewhere else and it's just too much work i suppose for a lot of people i i find that i find that to be to be very serious and interestingly enough like because daniel mentioned alexander dugin like he's been banned from amazon several years ago already i mean even tucker carlson like indirectly mentioned arctos uh, a couple of months ago when he talked about alexander dugin on his on his show and said that dugin is not available on amazon it's basically censorship like, like it's it's like almost like book burning right because uh, you don't exist like for the mainstream if you're not on amazon and and, and taka pointed this out very well and and i think it's true the same with youtube i mean you can go to BitChute and you know, other channels but it's just not the same like you will not have the same the same number of followers uh so that's the problem it, with these facebook is the same i mean you have gab but who's on gap right like not a lot of people compared to facebook um daniel what do you think about this yeah um <clears throat> i i believe that uh, it's uh, crucial crucially important to support all these old tech alternatives and uh, and um i i hope that they will grow and uh, present like a viable alternative to youtube for example um we have rumble now which is pretty impressive actually and it's kind of catching up to youtube so i think we eventually will get to a point where there are like several uh <laughs> several separate uh, digital uh ghettos or bubbles where you know left wings left-wing people and normies are on youtube and you know uh, while, while all the right-wing people are on rumble but to a more important point to make actually is that uh, when they deplatform you uh, or us <clears throat> in this case, they don't really try to make our books completely unavailable. They just want to make sure they are not easily available. Because uh, if, if we can only sell our books through our own website, we, we will only basically. Uh, reach out to to the hardcore fans, to to people who are already convinced. But um, when, when you're able to disseminate your 
ideas and material and content via Amazon, via YouTube, via all these major platform platforms. That's when you can reach out to new people and, and get more people, you know, interested and and uh, and yeah. influenced by our ideas. And this is what they fear, and that is why that is that is uh, the the perp- the main purpose of the the censorship. I absolutely agree. And I just wanted to throw in here, this hasn't happened with you and it might be partially because you're on Amazon. I think I've, I think I've used Amazon to buy. Yes. I used Amazon to buy, to purchase your products, but I tried to buy um, books directly from the website on Imperium press and Antelope Hill and neither worked. And I'm not exactly sure why, if it had something to do with them, their troubles. I know Imperium has had some troubles and, um, and then I've, I, I do have an Antelope Hill uh, book that I bought on Amazon, and um, I believe there was uh, oh well Passage Press they're they're doing they're doing good they haven't had any any issues I could buy directly from their website, but uh, you know I should go back based on what you guys are saying and try to purchase from directly from Imperium again and see if it's if it's working now. See, I think I think uh, well Daniel made a good point. Uh, the point being that, like, of course, you can you you can get these books. You can order like like you just also said. You can order directly from from the publisher's website. Yeah, that I mean that's ideal in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, of course it is ideal. I agree, but but unfortunately, this is not how it works with with the majority of people though. Yes, because if if I mean if 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 you're like I don't know Joe Sixpack and 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 you watch the news and the name Alexander Dugin is mentioned and you're like, hmm, Alexander Dugin sounds interesting. I'm going to look him up. So I know that Joe Sixpack goes on the internet, opens Amazon, Alexander Dugin not available. He says, eh, whatever. Right. I mean, very, like I said, very few of these people like will actually search for the book. I mean, some people will, of course, like people who really want to read it, but like people who are like, Sick, like just interested in it or, or potentially interested in it and just want to order it real quick just to check it out they won't do it and i think like daniel said like same with youtube like people who go on youtube type in i don't know certain topic in the search function they will they will often not come across our videos because they've been kicked off youtube and they will not go to rumble and search for it yes i mean if like a it's good that Rumble exists, of course. You can watch all these videos. But like Daniel said, they, they want to deplatformers from the mainstream ones because they don't want uh, the mainstream to become, quote-unquote, infected uh, with our with our ideas. Yeah, I think, um, it's, but, I th- I think it's inevitable. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, ahead, what, what yeah, uh, yeah, sorry for interrupting. But uh, yeah, what they are effectively doing to... to um, to use uh, a term from from uh, economic market theory is to to raise the barriers of uh, entry to to our ideas by making our ideas kind of ghettoized uh, or, or relegated to you know these uh, all tech platforms which uh, few people are using and, and normies uh, have a kind of are very unlikely to register an account and follow us on, for example, Gab or, or um, even Odyssey and, and uh, places like that, or or registering an account on our website just to order a book by Dugin, for example. 
So if, if, a, if our stuff is not out there on the platforms that they are using on a daily basis, they will not really make the effort. Few people will, will do it, of course, but yeah, we, we will reach like a few percent of our potential audience. Well, and that's, yeah. Sorry. That's the goal, basically. I'm not going to use this episode to uh, shill for Twitter or Elon Musk, but it's giving me a lot of reason for optimism. And I'd like to think that this will be uh, an exchange of a, a, a platform for exchanging products and buying and selling that may be friendly to you. I think they're friendly to our ideas. I know some people are still being banned in the post Musk uh, era, but it's far less likely. Lots of people were reinstalled, reinstated. Their accounts were reinstated. And he's looking, it looks like, you know, from what I understand from what he's been saying, he wants uh, not only to sell like digital products, but also, and, and, you know, content, sell the digital content directly to, you know, subscribers to the individual Twitter pages. But it sounds like the Twitter X uh, plan involves selling hard goods as well. So I think that might be an opportunity for you guys to do this unencumbered. I think he's trying to compete with Amazon, actually. And uh, I think he's doing so uh, openly and directly. So yeah, this might, I, I, might be an opportunity for you guys. I totally agree. And I, I believe that's, uh, that's also the case. And, and in some ways, he's already starting to compete with YouTube with all the, these uh, new possibilities to upload long videos uh, in high quality, for example and reach many more people through Twitter than you would reach on YouTube. I think Tucker Carlson is, is using Twitter as his main uh, platform for disseminating his videos, for example. And uh, well, that's, yeah, yeah that, that's, the, the Tucker that's thing is huge. The Tucker thing is huge. Uh, some shameless self-promotion. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm, I'm often hosting live Twitter spaces. And the thing I've been talking about the most lately is Tucker coming to Twitter, what what that means and how significant that actually is, how much traffic, because you guys are talking about overcoming, you know, the normies proclivity for laziness uh, is is a difficult thing. And that's what those guys are targeting. I believe Tucker coming to Twitter will bring a lot of those people to Twitter. And then if 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 Musk is creating an environment, if he, if he turns it into Twitter X, where you can buy products there. You don't even have to go off the website. So a huge opportunity, I think, is opening up. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm, uh, I am uh, certainly optimistic as well. Uh, no, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yep, go ahead. No, just, just, just real quick, because you mentioned Tucker, because I watched the videos that uh, Tucker posted on Twitter. And I think like they got like 80 or 90 million views. So it's, it's pretty impressive. Oh, I think it's up to over a hundred million now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's big, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I think. Huge. I mean, if 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 he's going to start his show on Twitter, I think it'll it'll be bigger than the one he had on Fox. That would be amazing. That would be absolutely amazing if that happened. I mean, Alex Jones was getting uh, huge amounts of website traffic that that dwarfed almost. I mean, it dwarfed some entire cable news channels, let alone cable news shows. So, yeah, I, I hope you're right about this. So, look, yeah, I wanted to change tact a little bit and talk a, a little about Avola and Spengler because those are the two authors that you guys publish that I've read the most of and I'm the most familiar with. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I'd like to give you, before we, we close the show out on that, uh, if there's anything else you wanted to promote, 
or say about the website or about the the company uh go ahead before we we change to to Spengler and Evola yeah sure um go to arctos.com uh if you like what you see please sign sign up for uh, a membership um if you if you do so you will get uh a free digital product per month if you choose the second tier option or you can make donations and uh, and also follow us on twitter and telegram which are, are our main uh social media platforms that we use right now we will we will provide the links so you can put them in the show notes and then constantin before we uh, before we change tack is there anything that you're working on or that has come across your desk that hasn't been published yet that you want to, um, you want to hype up, you want to get us excited for something that uh, may be coming down the pike in the next few weeks or months? Uh, well, there's a new, there's a, there, there's a, there's an, there's an Alexander Dugin book coming out soon is the, the tempers of the proletariat, which uh, has never been translated or published in English before. So, so that'll be coming out soon. I think, that's probably going to be very popular. Um, well, there are a bunch of other books that Arctos is working on, but I think it's better to be to be surprised. So I don't want to give too much away, to be honest. All right. Well, I look forward to it. And I want everyone to incorporate the Arctos.com into their daily consumption of content because it's um, it's really unmatched. It's really unmatched. So listen, uh, in the very beginning, Daniel said he noticed a huge wide open market for untranslated European thinkers in the English speaking world. And that's exactly, exactly right. And um, uh, there's been a clear shift. You know, I don't I don't know what you guys think about Moldbug. No, no reason to to talk about him, except to say that uh, I just did a series of episodes um, on Twitter, live on Twitter that are going to be a, a long four or five hour episode released on my pod shortly about his first essay, the open, uh, what is it? The open letter to open-minded progressives, which came out in 2007. So it was really good to get like a retrospective on what he was saying at the time and what the political environment was like at the time, because this was like pretty much the, the wake of the death of the paleocons and the rise of the neocons. Um, that sort of ushered in uh, Obama and libertarianism. So the American political, public political discourse was being watered down and um, just retarded in, in like some of the worst I've ever seen up until, uh, with the caveat, up until the last year or two when this woke, woke stuff is taking over. Anyway, my point being is he called at the time for uh, reviving dead obscure and uh, obfuscated European thinkers from before World War II who were basically edited out of history, which I now see happened on purpose uh, after World War II. And he said that this is a way to infuse the right with like uh, new ideas to, to form a synthesis. I mean, this is kind of what Constantine was saying earlier, to form a synthesis of new thought. And that has certainly happened in the, uh, you know, in the intervening years since then until now. Absolutely. There's a huge sea change. Uh, and the right, the, the reason I, I came here and started spending time here is because the right is the only place, the online right really, is the only place I've found uh, 
with fresh ideas, novel perspectives, and independent thought. And I have to say that Arctos is one of the most important uh, outlets for this and one of the main reasons why this happened, um, you know, with with what you've been doing. So I don't know if you want to respond to that before I, I take it somewhere specific. No, uh, just that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Thanks, I guess. So, uh, Evola and Spengler, um, you know, people, people who listen to me know I'm, I'm constantly banging on about these guys. Uh, yeah, uh, Decline of the West, Volume 1 and 2, you guys put out just spectacular, gorgeous versions of this book, uh, both volumes. And uh, Man and Technics as well. As far as I know, it's the only Man and Technics in print right now. And Constantine is actually the translator of early days of world history, which I didn't realize when I did an episode on it. Although I haven't read that one yet. So we only spoke about it for a little while. And then we got into like the historical context of Spengler. It's, I think the episode is called Spengler in Context. Uh, one of the guests on that show goes by the name Spurgler Acolyte. And Constantine, he interviewed you in, in text on his blog. So um, I, I could I could just give a broad introduction and ask you to talk about Spengler. Um, but if you want some specifics, I can ask some specific questions as well, because the man and techniques, man and techniques, I would say that's the book you need to read. If you don't want to commit to like Spengler's entire body of work, that's the one that sums it up the most succinctly. And it has some of his ideas from, from other books baked into it. And your edition has a fantastic introduction who I can't remember who wrote the introduction. Do you want to remind us who wrote the introduction? Uh, Daniel, do, do you do you remember who wrote the introduction to Man and Tech? Uh, um, no, I don't. But uh, it was I, one I, of I your can't... authors, and and it's 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 an unbelievable resource. That introduction alone is an unbelievable resource for Spengler. Uh, yeah. I have the book in front of me. Uh, it's easy enough to check. Uh, yeah, actually, the pre uh, preface was written by Lars Lars Holgerholm, as one of our Swedish authors, and uh, yeah, a big, big Spengler guy. And he, um, yeah, he, he's actually also translated some Spengler for us, but into Swedish. We, we published Spengler in like. Three different languages. Uh, most of the books are published in, in both English, German, and Swedish. So, uh, yeah. Well, excellent. So, what would you mind talking about uh, the experience of translating uh, early days of world history? Because I remember when I first read Spengler, uh, that book was untranslated and it was like this thing that we thought we would never get to read. Yeah, I would, I would just like to say, like, the, the, what the, the reason I translated this book is precisely because it had never been translated, and, uh, which I find crazy, to be honest, right? Like, like when I, when I, when I did research about Spengler, just, you know, online to see what has been translated besides the, the, the famous stuff, I came across this book, the, the, the Frühzeit der Weltgeschichte. I'm like, yeah, posthumous writings uh, published after Spengler's death. And I try to find an English translation just to see like, if 
if there if there even was one and nope there was none like in, in over a hundred years like nobody ever like thought of translating this book I find this extremely odd to be honest right I mean I mean it's it's fragments it's fragmentary in nature because it's basically notes that that, that Spengler wrote that he later wanted to to, to flesh out into like a, a full-scale book but he never got around to do it because he died um but the notes themselves are already like quite readable in my opinion I mean there's complete sentences there there are complete ideas there are whole philosophies already semi-fleshed out that that are easy to follow and and that that are quite fascinating in my opinion so so yeah I I was really shocked I mean do you have to what what do you think Like, like why do you think this book had never been translated before I mean, isn't isn't that really strange? Well, it's a fair question, but Spengler was extremely obscure for a long time. I know that uh, Joseph Campbell had a long a long period in the in the limelight of uh, you know misstudies in American thought, especially because of Star Wars. And as far as I know, his work is the only work that really referenced Spengler. I don't know who was reading him. He's got this series. Uh, I can't remember the name of the series now. Uh, Occidental mythology, Oriental mythology, and he goes through like the four different uh, mythological heritages of the world. And Spengler is all through that. He's referencing him constantly. But those are like his lesser read books. Um, And I know, uh, not Arnold Toynbee, but um, Carol Quigley was a Rhodes Scholar who, who was a professor to a lot of American uh politicians and and bureaucrats and people like that and uh he was a toynbee scholar and had also read spengler and of course toynbee was one of you know spengler had like a bunch of acolytes who read his book and then tried to do some version their own version uh, toynbee and avola being two of them but spengler, and, but but as far as i know like like spengler like was pretty popular like in the counterculture in the 1960s even because like even like Jack Kerouac and, and yeah. Burroughs, these people talked about Spengler a lot in their writings as well. Yeah, so, I was gonna um, I was gonna say though where I was going with that is that this all ended in the 60s and 70s, and then he sort of disappeared. I assume, you know, I I I have assumed that uh uh Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington had probably read him, but I have never seen him referenced in their work, and I, I would think that it's probably on purpose. Um you know. But no, yeah, you're I, right. You're right. He was popular, and then he sort of it faded away, I guess, in the '70s, and never really came back until now. So, so, so you just said that um, Fukuyama or Huntington probably didn't uh, mention Spengler on purpose. Like, like, what would that purpose be, in your opinion? That's a great question. I'm not an expert on this, but my well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> no, no, I understand. I understand. My, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, like, like, because you're right, though, right? I mean, because because the analogy is apparent, like the decline of the West, like the end of history, the, the clash of civilizations. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, wow, uh, interesting. Like, this is clearly influenced by Spengler, but they don't really talk about Spengler, right? And interestingly enough, like, 
just as an aside real quick, if you don't mind, uh, the, the Samuel Huntington book, I think it's called The, the, the Clash of Civilizations. Um, the German translation of this book is called Kampf der Kulturen. Uh, so it's, it's basically a clash of cultures. I mean, I mean, for, for the average person, it's pretty much the same thing, I guess, right? Like clash of cultures, clash of civilizations, but... But but Spengler himself like like clearly differentiated the two terms right civilization and culture. Well, the, the, the first you have the culture, and sort of it, it degenerates in, into a civilization. So I I just found it also like rather odd right that the the German publisher would choose to to translate an English an English title Clash of Civilizations into into Clash of Cultures, uh, either completely unaware of of, of 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 Spengler's differentiation or he somehow did it on purpose not sure well I I mean the simple answer to this is that it's because uh because uh Spengler is a, a reactionary and he's he's a, a a reactionary farther to the right of even the national socialists uh, of his day and Avola as well so I mean I would like to think that because, uh, you know, uh, Fukuyama was was conscientiously a neocon at the time. I think Huntington was, too. But as far as I know, they're really the only two guys who were talking about world history in the way that they do. Um, and the, neo the neocon approach is basically bring democracy to, you know, the third world or bring democracy to the world outside the West. And then once that is installed, they will then uh, turn into like capitalist, capitalist democracies, and they will all get up on on the same page as us economically and intellectually, and we'll have this like thriving world of um, of uh, marketplace of ideas, which of course turned out to be a lie. I, I knew it was a lie at the time, but a lot of people went for it. Unfortunately, uh, this was the justification for uh, invading Iraq. Whereas, well, go ahead. Yeah. No, sorry, but I mean it was. It, it reminds me of 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 Ledeen who who talked about creative destruction, and and he was, I think, Michael Ledeen. He's called right that neocon, uh, neocon guy. And I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Not him, but uh, well, anyway, he was he was he was he was very interested in Mussolini and, and fascism uh, without being a fascist himself or even right wing. I mean, complete neocon. And, and he praised like the, like these American interventions and basically called them like I think he he coined the phrase uh, creative destruction, right? So basically, America goes to Iraq, destroys the infrastructure to build something new out of it. And I think, as you just mentioned, I think that was the whole idea, right? The the the, the, the installing of the new world order. But first, you have to destroy the old order, right? Before you can build the new. But I mean, it, it failed, but that was the plan. This is not what Spengler advocates for, especially in Hour of Decision. Um, he he wants, basically, he he advocated for German imperialism. And uh, his Prussianism was really anti-democratic, or it's certainly anti-democratic in the eyes of... Um, of uh, 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 of Western liberals. I mean, I just read this book, uh, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And it's, it, I mean, that book is, has to be read with a very critical eye because it is, it is pure propaganda. 
um our friend thomas 77 considers it like pure lies i don't know if that's exactly accurate but it's it's certainly ideological anyway my point is he uh he characterizes Prussianism in that book and he just uh, tries to eviscerate it. And he goes on to talk about how what a repressive and, and closed minded society Prussia was and that Prussianism is extremely anti-democratic. So I have to think that this was like uh, t extreme taboo in intellectual circles in the at the turn of the 20th century, especially after the fall of um, because isn't Alexander Dugan's whole thing. The fourth way is communism, fascism. Uh, what what is his term? The fourth, the fourth. It's a, it's a the fourth, fourth political theory. Right. Yes, thank you, thank you. So I I think that these people saw, um, fascism as something that had died. It was dead and buried, and they did not want to revive it. Not that Spengler was a fascist, but he was he was part of that, uh thought movement and then communism had just died with the fall of the berlin wall and they wanted liberal i mean that's fukuyama's whole thing they wanted liberal democracy to reign supreme over the entire world uh, and then dugan's saying we need a fourth way uh, so i think that that would be the motivation whether it was conscientious or not i mean it's quite simple it's quite possible that spengler's perspective had simply fallen out of out of vogue in it in academia but but we can say for sure at least in the last 20 25 years that academia had become openly hostile to uh, non-democratic, non—you know—radical left ideas, and um, you know, I would think, I would think, you probably wouldn't have much luck trying to be a professor anywhere in the Ivy League or in a, a local community college, trying to teach a course on Spengler or even incorporate him. Uh, I can't imagine what would happen to you if you if you did that. Well, that's a good point, right? And talking, talking, talking about democracy, like, 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 I think you you touched on the subject earlier. Uh, Spengler was not a fascist, and he also was maybe at the beginning sympathetic to national socialism, but but later on he was also very critical of it. And one of the reasons why he was so critical of of Hitler is because Hitler. Uh, came to power through democratic means, right? And th th this is what irked him, I suppose. Like the the, the whole democratic democratic facade that that the NSDAP and, and and Hitler tried to to show to the world, and Spengler was completely opposed to. But interestingly enough, I think uh, I think Hitler uh, was a Spenglerian to some extent because he basically thought that he would uh, fulfill uh, Spengler's vision of, of the coming of the Caesars, right? So so, so, so the West is dying, the, the Faustian civilization, it's, it's in, in, in its death throes. Uh, it's finished, basically. And, 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 and I, Hitler viewed himself as, as a strong man and as a Caesar who's coming to build a new order. Um, or possibly he also thought that not he's not the Caesar in the last days of the West, of the dying West, but maybe he's already the, the harbinger or, or, or the first of, of, of the new organism, of, of, of a new civilization that, that, that basically uh, should have been the successor of the West. So, 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 so the West, the democratic West, but the Faustian West was basically senile, old, and, and almost dead. And 
Hitler viewed the National Socialists as already the seed of, of, of the new organism, something just being born. So I think in that sense, he viewed himself as a, as a, as a follower of uh, Spengler's ideas. And then I know, and you know, that, that Spengler was, was first wooed by the National Socialists, invited to participate um, in the regime's activities, but uh, he wasn't interested and refused, so to speak. And, and as far as I know, as punishment, he was ignored by the, by the Third Reich. Like, his name wasn't mentioned anywhere. He was like a persona non grata in the end. Yes, yes. We talk about this in our Spengler in Context episode. Actually, I'm I'm putting together a roundtable discussion on Spengler. I would like to uh, formally invite you now. You can come. You can come on that, and we can discuss it uh, in much more detail. Getting back to what I said about, um, I mentioned Carol Quigley, and and you asked like why Spengler had been shut out of the American intellectual discourse. Carol Quigley was a scholar, a student of Toynbee's, and Carol Quigley was a Rhodes Scholar who famously uh, taught Bill Clinton. But of course, many of the American political elite went through the Rhodes program. And uh, Toynbee was like fundamental to the Chatham House, uh, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the, the Chatham House version of politics and foreign policy. And he was an advisor to the British foreign policy, uh, to British foreign policy. Uh, there's a book called the Chatham House Version, which is kind of like a, a refutation of this. And it's um, it's basically like the the British version of what, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, from, from reading about it, it's basically the British version of what America did after World War One, because because Toynbee was also advising the Brit British intelligence, actually, uh, all through World War One uh, and the and the interwar years and into World War Two, and it's basically the establishment of the post-war liberal order was carried out, sort of uh, or or initiated, I should say, it was initiated uh, in in. America by Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations and all of that, and in in Britain it was the uh, the Chatham House version. This this is direct opposition to to Spengler's ideas, and of course Germany lost the war. Uh, so it, it, his ideas, I think, are direct refutation of of the initiation of the what we call the liberal world order that was uh, manufactured. You know, directly by this guy who, as far as I understand, Toynbee didn't see himself as like a rival or or a, I think he saw himself as like a student or a follower of Spengler. I don't I don't think I could be getting this wrong, uh, but it, it it played out in such a way that, uh, you know, the, his legacy was directly oppositional to, to Spengler's. I think I, th I think I think it's also connected to the archetypes like that. that, that, that I mean, what you just talked about. The, the opposition between Toynbee and, and, and Spengler is sort of like the, the Werner Sombart talked about this uh, in his book, uh, Traitors and Heroes, which was also published by Arctos, by the way. Because you have, I mean, have you read this book, Traitors and Heroes? I, I have not. Uh, yeah, I think it might be interesting for you because, I mean, it was also written uh, dur during the First World War, uh, a German author. Uh, he basically uh, 
shows the two national characters of, of the English and the Germans. And he says that like, the English, well, just to sum it up, the English are basically traitors in mentality, like, like well, mercantile. Yeah, mercantile. And, 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 and the Germans are heroes, like, like soldierly, so to speak honor soldierly and and really not non non-materialist to some extent uh and i think it's it's he was on to something and 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 i think spengler pretty much had the same view of the german national character as opposed to the western character because i think i think i mean like all these conservative revolutionaries in the weimar republic I mean, a lot of them, at least, they, they viewed the West really as the enemy, and they thought that Germany is not is not really part of the West and should ally itself with the East, even Bolshevik Russia at the time, or India, the, the, even these anti-colonial movements against the West, right? So, so to to not be sucked into the to, to this liberal vortex to resist it. Yes, and and looking at this book. Uh, by the way, what, you asked me if I read a book, but it sounds like you're describing one of the essays in Prussianism and Socialism with the the archetypes of the traitor and the, the yeah. yeah, yeah. The, well, well, that's what I said. There, there's a whole book. The author is Van Sombart, S O M B A R T. He wrote a whole book about this. Theory. Yeah. See, I didn't. I didn't know about this book. Yeah, yeah. And it, well, you should you should check it out. Like, I highly recommend it. And and I, and it was also an original translation. And Arcus came out with a couple of years ago. Also with an excellent introduction, by the way, by uh, Alexander Jacob. Not not sure if you're familiar with him. Like he, I don't know, writes a lot about this this period, like 1920s conservative revolution. And uh, well, anyways, uh, Spengler talks about it. But in this book, Vanessa Sommer also talks about it, just in more detail. Uh, that's what I was trying to get at. No, of course. Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds great. Yeah, and I'm looking at this book. I mentioned the Chatham House version. And, you know, it almost sounds like he's describing the disasters of uh, British interventions in the Middle East uh, in in the interwar years, which apparently Toynbee had, had a lot to do with. A lot of it was his idea. And the way he's describing their intentions and the things that went wrong with it, it sounds exactly like the way we were talking about the neocons and their their argument for interventionism in the Middle East. It's almost like a, a replay 100 years later of what the British did. Although I guess I guess you could make an argument that we were successful at the end of the but day. But isn't this is that that doesn't always go back to the say say Rudyard Kipling and and, and his poem the the white man's burden yeah that basically it, I mean Dugin talks about this also I mean because Dugin is very critical of the West and and, and he says basically that the, the West is like uh, to some extent even today a racist construction I mean a lot of I know a lot of people on on the right that they object. And, uh, to, to, to this to this view, like calling the West today racist, when all we see is anti-racist propaganda. But this is not what 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 Dugin talks about. Uh, well, he because you were talking about interventionism by the British and and, and comparing it to, to to American interventionism today, but it's pretty much the same thing, right? It, it, it's the West trying to force its way of life and and its ideology. Uh, well, like you mentioned earlier, onto the rest of the world, because the West thinks that only its way of life is the right way of life, and 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 all other ways are just wrong, 
It's like it's completely intolerant. And so the West thinks it is the end and be all of existence. And, and this is what Dugin means when he says the West is racist. So 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 maybe he chose the wrong words, but basically I agree with with, with Dugin's interpretation of the West and the West's actions today. Yeah, uh, that, and I think Speng, I mean, yeah, sorry, but I mean, people like Spengler, even back then, they they had the same ideas or similar ideas. Sorry, I just, no, don't be, don't be sorry. Uh, you guys are the guests here. I'm actually running out of time. I absolutely insist that you come back though, because there's a lot to talk about here, and uh, you know, I have some good, some good people that I can put into the mix who are who are experts on some of this stuff. But um, yeah, I wanted to say that the uh, the hour of decision is sort of the refutation, uh, at least from from the 1930s, although it's extremely prescient and it's quite prophetic of a book. I mean, he had he had the fatal flaw in Western liberalism already worked out, and he certainly, certainly blames uh, a lot of it on the Anglos and the Anglo spirit, uh, the, not just the mercantilism and the, and the traders, but also the, um, and we're saying traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, not traitors. Um, uh, and their evangelical nature on on some of the ways they uh, treated their subjects, uh, Spengler seems to think they maybe were a little bit too too uh, magnanimous and kind to them, <laughs> thought thought too highly of them, right? Because man and technics and 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 um, the hour of decision. Part of the criticism there is giving the 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 tools of technology and political ideology to third worlders that's spangler saying this is basically a suicidal error correct me if i've mischaracterized that anyway my point is is um uh, our decision stands as a refutation of this entire western liberal project and i think um you know the neocons and the and the american uh, anglosphere political anglosphere as it still stands which some people say it's basically dead and gone now and there's probably good reason to say that uh it it is it is the the counter to to spengler and uh, i think it's failed in the way spengler said it was going to fail so i'd like you to maybe uh, i'm going to give you guys the floor if you if you'd like to speak maybe respond to me or bring something up we haven't had a chance to talk about yet for maybe the next five minutes and we'll we'll end the show with a with a uh, insistence uh, and open invitation to come back and do more because this was uh feels like we're just getting started uh daniel yeah yeah no i i i'm not sure i have much to to add i mean i already plugged the website and underlined the importance of getting on there read our articles and subscribe and so on so i don't know over to you i guess well, I want I want to I want to just add something to what Daniel just said. Um, going back to the Arctos website real quick, and it's directly connected to what we were just discussing: uh, the topic of, of of the West, the death of the West, the the, the West trying to to uh, be in power, the West still trying to dominate, resistance from Russia, maybe resistance from China, unipolarity versus multipolarity. I mean, all these topics are extremely important, especially now, today, with conflicts all over the place in Ukraine, Taiwan, and various other places. So none of these ideas are outdated. Nothing that Spengler said is outdated. I mean, 
it's completely relevant today. And Arctos, I mean, made it its mission to, to basically talk about these things, basically connect to what these the, these thinkers a hundred years ago said to what thinkers today say. And the difference sometimes is not big. I mean, it's directly connected. It's like one line, basically. And Arctos is trying to 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 spread these ideas, to synthesize these ideas by presenting new translations of old texts and new texts based on ideas that people already expressed, I don't know, decades ago. And therefore find maybe new solutions to current problems. And I think this is why it's so important to have a think tank like Arctos in today's world. A think tank that is not afraid, like you said, the mainstream, because you mentioned earlier, like you would never be able to teach a course on Spengler in any university in America or I know probably in Western Europe today. Because people are afraid. Yes. Even though like I think people deep down know that people like Spengler were right they can't talk about it, right? Because they don't want to be deplatformed. They don't want to be uh, lose their career, lose opportunities that they think they have. But Arctos does not have this, right? So, so, so Arctos wants to present these ideas and openly discuss them. And Arctos wants to invite other thinkers to participate in this discussion. So I would also like to invite your listeners if they're interested to contribute or interested in, 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 I don't know, writing articles that, yeah, please send them along and we can have a look at them, maybe publish them. You, you can participate in, in this, in this process. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I'll do my part to help um, promote your, promote your uh, website and to promote your, whatever you have on Twitter. And, um, I have to go. Thank you so much for coming on. I hate to be so unceremonious about the ending here, but it's uh, I once again woke up at quarter to 4 a.m. to talk to some European guests. It's something I am quite proud and honored to be able to do. So I look forward to the chance in the future. Um, thank you so much, guys. This was great. I'm glad we got your, your story out with Arctos and we got the beginning of a discussion going about uh, Spengler and his significance. And, and we'll, next time, we'll also try to get into Evola and Dugan more. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much for having us. All right. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Right. Of course, anytime from here on out, the invitation is now open. The Astral Flight Podcast is signing off. <laughs>